Welcome to the Seek Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I'm Erin Falbo, your host for this season. Each week, we're sharing content that dives into the heart of the gospel, who God is, who we are, and what it means to live in relationship with Him. We're excited to walk with you as you encounter the Lord. Okay, so we have about a half an hour, and I'll try to, I'll make sure I go under it because I always push it. A professor for many years, I'm used to boring people to death. So, but thinking I'm being brilliant at the same time, so it's like the worst combination. It is so good. Thanks for coming, after all. This was like an added-on session. So the brief story on that was I was supposed to give this talk on Tuesday, but I found out on Saturday that I needed to be in Rome for the funeral, for my, my day job, for, for Benedict's funeral. And I'm sitting in the airport Tuesday afternoon, and for whatever reasons, the flights just didn't work out. I couldn't get there in time for the stuff I was supposed to do. So I got to stay. But don't tell anybody how happy I am about that. I, I should have wanted to go to Rome. Uh, so thanks for coming. Thanks for coming to an ad-lib session uh, and showing up. I had this fear that there were going to be like four people here, all from Christ in the city, just out of uh, loyalty. All right, what do I want to do in the brief time we have? Uh, the serious thing I want to do is I want to try to impart to you a vision about serving the poor that you carry with you for your whole life. Those of you in the men's session may have heard this from Monsignor Shea. Here's the reality. We sometimes think in our life as Christians that the majority of the fighting happens at the level of the will. You, you got to fight lust. You got to fight desire for food. You got to fight your passions. But the fight in the Christian life starts here. It's always started here in the mind. It's how we see the world. And it's from how we see the world that the rest flows. What you see to be true shapes the decisions you take. And so what I'd like to do is give you a vision for serving the poor that goes well beyond just, I'm a Christian and serving poor is part of it. Or because I'm a Christian and I read the Bible, maybe I was raised Catholic like me, I actually have in the back of my head, if I don't serve the poor, I will go to hell, which by the way, Archbishop Shapu said at a seat conference many years ago that I was at and everyone went, <gasps> I want to take it beyond that because here's my argument for you today. Serving the poor is not just another thing you do as a Christian that if you don't do, there are certain consequences. Serving the poor is actually part of God's vision for setting the world right. It's a participation in redemption itself in God's great work. And once I, I want to try to impart that piece in the first 15 minutes with you and then take about 15 minutes or maybe 10 minutes at that point and talk to you about some practical things. Okay? On how you want to go at this in a fundamental way. Are you with me? All right, so two parts to this talk. So, first, the big picture. Serving the poor, why do we know there's something more going on than just another Christian duty? And I'd like to point to two things. One is just, let me use St. Francis here. It's a place of special encounter with Jesus Christ. And let me say up front, when I say poor, I mean material and spiritual. That's why we have the corporal works of mercy. You all know them, I'm sure. And that's why we have the spiritual works of mercy. They go together. When Jesus heals the paralytic, he forgives sins, and he helps the paralytic to walk and carry his mat, right? So it's both. That's what I mean by poverty. I'm using it in the big sense. So here's St. Francis on his deathbed. His brothers are around him. They know he's going, and they ask him for his last testament. Francis, our, our, our spiritual father, the founder of our order, the, the man who is, 
viewed by the Pope as holding the whole church up. What are your last words to us? What great wisdom are you going to impart? And his, in his last testament, he tells one story. And that story is about meeting a leper. And he says, I met the leper and I was in, at first I was repulsed. And I turned away, but in shame I turned back and I showed mercy to that leper. And from then on, I walked away from the world. I gave up the world to pursue Christ. Francis's conversion, the servant of the poor, the model of it, converted, converted because of an encounter with a leper where he showed mercy, which means he served, right? He did something for that person. There's something potent here. And the key to it, I would say, is something that the saints have always said, but I, I love Mother Teresa for this. And if you haven't seen the movie, go see the movie, not just because we produced it, the nights, but go see the Mother Teresa movie. Have any of you seen it? Okay, good. Good, you recommend it to your friends? Good. Mother Teresa said, everyone has said this, when we encounter the poor, we are in some particular special way encountering Christ himself. And this isn't just poetic language. This isn't just a nice way of saying when you're nice to people, it's really spiritual, okay? They mean it quite literally. Mother Teresa has said time and time again, the same Christ we encounter in the Eucharist is the same Christ we encounter in the poor. And when she was pressed on the fact that she would have her missionaries of charity pray, do a holy hour at the beginning of the day and do a holy hour at the end of the day, and people would press her like, well, shouldn't you be serving the poor? And she said, we serve Jesus 24 hours a day, the same Jesus. Because when we're in adoration and when we're out on the streets, it's the same Jesus being served. St. John Chrysostom, fourth century, one of the great church preachers. Uh, if you ever read his book, his, his um, Sermons on Wealth and Poverty, if you want to be convicted, I encourage you to pick it up, right? It's not a book for the faint-hearted. It'll make you rethink a lot of things. But he gave a number of sermons on serving the poor. So he's a bishop in the fourth century, and in the fourth century, they would have been standing for mass, and the altar would have been here, and the bishop would have preached seated. He would have been seated preaching, so he'd have been near the altar. And he gives a famous homily on 2 Corinthians in which he's talking, and he says, you reverence this altar. Because Jesus himself comes down onto this altar, you reference this altar, and rightly so. You should reverence this altar. But then you leave here and you walk past this altar on which there is sacrifice in the faces of those in need, and you ignore it. The same Jesus who comes down on this altar is the Jesus who is out there on those altars of the poor. There's a profound truth here, and I don't want to equate Metaphysically, what goes on in the Eucharist and what goes on in a human in this sort of sense. But there's something profound here. This is why an encounter with the poor is an encounter with Christ in a deep way, and it changes lives. Dorothy Day, some of you know this name. We're not saving the poor. The poor are saving us. Something's going on here. So I want to explain to you why I, this is the case from the perspective of the, of the Catholic. And to do that, I need to just revisit briefly with you, and for, uh, forgive me, some of you who were in a, a talk I gave earlier, I'm gonna retell a little piece of it, the Christian vision of reality. Because it explains 
it explains why there's something way more going on here than just be nice to people. Okay? Here's the fundamental truth of the entire universe, of everything visible and invisible. The single truth, the root of it all is this. God is love. The creator of the universe, visible and invisible, of all things from all eternity, is a trinity of persons in love with one another. And I think in a group like this, I can count on you all to know that by love, I don't mean a feeling, right? We're talking about love as a disposition, a decision for total self-emptying for the sake of another. Father emptying himself for the son, the son emptying himself for the father, a love so profound, it's a person, the Holy Spirit. All right, that's the center of the universe. Every other truth, every other thing comes back to that question. Complete and total self-emptying love. In the beginning, God was one, but he was not alone. He's a relationship. And all of reality reflects that love and that relationship. Now, you know the story. Out of this, God creates. He creates out of this love. He made you and me for love. He made everyone before us for love. He made the whole material world for love, the invisible and visible world. Out of love. Not because he needed anything, but because love has this way of overflowing. It makes more so that there could be more love, right? We break that love. We choose against it. Our forefathers chose against it, Adam and Eve. We choose against it ourselves. What happens when we break love? Many things. Sin enters the world. Darkness, oppression. All the things that we think of when we think of poverty. But at its foundation, what happens when love breaks is relationship breaks. We were made for relationship with God, with each other, with ourselves, with the natural world, for relationships. Those all break. People become isolated, which is a kind of hell. Now, here's the thing. God wants to fix this. How does he fix it? We were listening to Sister Miriam last night. How, how do we fix this? He could have come in in any number of ways. He could have started over. He could have rebuilt everything. He could have punished people. He could just force us. No, the way he fixes is he doubles down on love. Put more love in. Put more love in. So much so, so much self-emptying love that God himself empties himself in a way that we can't even understand really, in becoming a human being. But then even when he becomes a human being, he doesn't become a king. He actually self-empties again as a human being. By the time he's on the cross, y'all, he has nothing. No material possession. His friends have betrayed him. He is absolutely humiliated, stripped. His dignity is gone. Complete and total self-emptying Love. When God wants to fix the universe, redeem you and me, put things back into the order he meant it to be in, self-sacrificing love. This, by the way, explains some interesting things. I don't know if you read Isaiah much, but if you read the prophets and you look when the people of God break away and God comes and he, he threatens them, and then he convicts them, and then he tells them what they need to do. He tells them what they need to do. It's always three things. 
Get worship right. You haven't been worshiping right. You've been worshiping idols. You've got to worship right. Second, throw off the deeds of darkness. You're, you need to bring your life into God's order. And third, take care of the oppressed, the orphan, and the widow. That's how you fix the world. When John the Baptist was preaching, and he convicted everybody, so the people who would listen, and they said to him finally, John, what do we do? Oh my gosh, I don't want the wrath of God. He responds by telling them to go, work, go do material works of mercy. Part of fixing the universe is pouring love into it. So that when God says to us, I need you to serve the poor. If you don't serve the poor, you will be judged. If you don't love your neighbor, we read in James, you will be judged. We read in Matthew 25, there are those who did not serve me in the poor. And there are consequences to this. It's not just some, I got these rules out there that I need you to follow. What he's saying is I've invited you to participate in renewing and redeeming the world to the extent it can be before I wrap it all up. I've invited you into my great work, and it's essential to the life of a disciple. That's why, as we heard, Pope Benedict said, there's three things the church must do, the third of which is the works of mercy. You've got to love your neighbor. It's not something the church tacks on. It's essential to her being because the church is the bride of Christ participating in the redemption of the world. And I think this matters because all of a sudden, serving the poor, we're going to talk what that looks like, goes from being a nice add-on to the Christian life, something I'll get to later, an important thing, maybe something I'm a little scared of, that if I don't do, bad things will happen, to actually being the glorious adventure, exciting, amazing call to participate with the Lord and the renewing of his creation. Are you with me on this? That's the, that's the invitation. And it's a grand one. I, I, this is not just some neat little thing. It's a grand one. This is why the Bible mentions serving the poor, or the poor, or doing charity 2,000 times, right? It's not an accident. All right. Second observation. That's the theological framing I wanted to give you. Now let's just talk about an insight that has come from the last three Holy Fathers and from Mother Teresa herself that I think I hope will evoke something to get us somewhere. At different times, when Pope Francis, John Paul II, Benedict, and Mother Teresa were all asked the question, what's the greatest poverty in the world? They gave the same answer, believe it or not. Of all the things you can think of that could be wrong in the world, of which there are many, I've, been, I've seen a lot of them. I've been all over the world. When I was working for the bishops, I was overseeing justice and peace and charity departments. So I've been all over the world looking at these things. I just got back from Ukraine and Poland. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. Seeing what's going on over there. I've seen a lot of it. There's a, you just think like there's a million things we can fix. They all gave the same answer. And I'd like to start with Mother Teresa's answer, if you'll let me just read it to you. She said, the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for isolation, the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying 
for a little love. Isolation. Benedict XVI from Caritas and Veritate. One of the deepest forms of poverty a person can experience is isolation. Isolation. If we look closely at other kinds of poverty, including material kinds, we see that they are born from isolation, from not being loved, or from difficulties of being able to love. And now Pope Francis. This one's a little longer, but it's got that Pope Francis kind of magic to it, where he'll just put a litany together and he starts painting a picture in your mind, and I think it's profound. It's worth reading. This was at... um, Uh, World Youth Day in 2013, he addressed the bishops of Brazil before World Youth Day. It's typical they address the bishops first, the Holy Father. And this is him sort of laying out his vision. This was very early in his pontificate. Nobody quite knew who he was. And he was sort of expressing, this is what I want my pontificate to be about in a certain way. Longish quote, bear with me, but I I think it'll grab you. He says, a relentless process of globalization an often uncontrolled process of urbanization of promised great things. He's for globalization to a certain degree, okay? Many people have been captivated by its potential, which of course it has many positive elements, and he goes on to say a few positive things about it. And then he turns and he says, but many also completely overlook its darker side. And here's the litany. This is his picture of true poverty. And keep the word isolation in your ear as you, as you listen. Quote, The loss of a sense of life's meaning, personal dissolution, a loss of the experience of belonging to any home whatsoever, subtle but relentless violence, the inner fragmentation and breakup of families, loneliness and abandonment, divisions, the inability to love, to forgive, to understand, the inner poison which makes life a hell, the need for affection because the feelings of inadequacy and unhappiness. The failed attempt to find an answer in drugs, alcohol, and sex, which only become further prisons. The great sense of abandonment and solitude, of not even belonging to oneself. What am I? Which often result from this situation is too painful to hide. End quote. And isolation steals hope. Isolation is a poverty that steals hope. I remember a good friend of mine, Ralph, who I worked with. Ralph knows more about urban poverty. Uh, He's forgotten more about urban poverty than I'll ever know. And I worked with him at the USCCB. He's the kind of guy people call up when there's a problem. Ralph played uh, football at TCU. I'm angry because I went to Michigan. But anyway, I'll get over it. And um, he's just been in this space forever. So when Ferguson happened, they call Ralph. Ralph, can you come help? Can you just walk? And he was walking the streets in Ferguson. And at a certain point, this is right after things, right? So it's a dangerous place to be walking. But Ralph's a big guy, and he's, not, he's been around. And at one point, a young, young guy comes running up, runs into him, kind of. And he's carrying a car battery that he's clearly just stolen. And Ralph says, he looked at this kid, and he said, um, man, what are you doing? What are you doing? You, you, just, you just, for a car battery, you know what? Because you took that, you know they have cameras, right? They're going to know it's you. And what that has just done is because of that, you're not going to be able to finish school. And you're not going to be able to hold a job. And if you can't hold a job, you're not going to be able to get married. And what kind of life are you going to build if you can't have any of those things? And he said the young man just looked at him and said, man, I'm never going to have any of those things anyway. Never going to have. Isolation. 
the sense that no one's on your side, the sense that you're standing all alone, steals hope. Steals hope. And ours is a world steeped in isolation. You get why now from the theology, right? Because what does sin do? It ruptures relationship. We were made for relationship. The whole universe is a relationship. It's God as love. Three persons loving one another. So once you take a human being out of relationship, you have taken them out of the most core reality of their experience of being an immortal soul. And so of course it ruptures. Of course it breaks. And when are we most terrified in our own lives? When we feel isolated, when no one's on our side, no one gets us, no one understands us. Now multiply that by 100, by 1,000. Mother Teresa, when she came to the United States in 1995, and spoke at the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. It was one of her first visits to certain places in the United States, right? So she's speaking in Washington, D.C. This is the famous talk she gave where she actually calls out the United States. This is, uh, she also called out the whole UN on this, but she calls out the United States on abortion. And so that's what people remember it for. But there was another part of that talk. She had just gone to one of her homes for the elderly that her sisters were running. And she shared a story from it. She says, I've been in this home with the, the, she said, I walked in and you've been to homes for the elderly, I trust you've been into them and they have a certain way about them. Um, and she said, she was blown away. All right, so she's come from Calcutta, poorest of the poor. She's literally helping people die on concrete floors with maybe a little bit of a mat, pulling maggots off them, right? That's what she's doing, literally. And she comes to the United States, she goes, I walk into this room and there's, She's like, I see this big building, and I open these glass doors, and there's this desk, and someone's smiling to welcome me, and there's this lounge over on this side, and chairs, and there's a television down, and there's bulletin boards with things to do, and everything's clean, and there's food, and there's light, and it's not cramped, and it's not crowded, and she just thought, this is amazing how we, how we treat the poor in the United States, how wonderful. And then she says, and I, I looked around, and she says, then I realized that the few residents who were sitting in this lounge area, they weren't talking at each, to each other. They weren't watching the TV. They weren't engaged in anything. They were just sitting there, staring at the glass doors. And she said, so she turned to her sister, and she said, sister, what's going on? And the sister said, mother, it's always like this. They're waiting for a son or a daughter to walk through the door. They're waiting for someone who loves them. Because they're isolated. And isolation is their greatest pain. It makes sense, y'all, because of the way we're made. So here's the challenge. How do we go after isolation? Look, anything you want to do to serve those in need, please do. Preach the gospel. Visit prisons. Do whatever you want to do. But the root thing we want to get at is we want to restore relationship. We want to be part of putting love in. This is why just giving a piece of bread, as good as it is, is never enough, says Benedict. Because we need to heal the isolation. That's relationship. That's love. So how do we do it? A word we use a ton of is this word encounter. Encounter. I think we borrow the meaning that we use of it a lot from what it means in Spanish. In Spanish, un encuentro is something much deeper than just running into someone. In English, by the way, encounter we used to use until very recently, largely for like the two armies encountered one another. It wasn't necessarily a good thing. 
The positive meaning we take a lot from the Spanish, un encuentro. And an encuentro is a connection with someone. It's meeting someone and in some way reaffirming one another's dignity. That somehow, even if it's very brief, value is given both ways. It sticks with you. This is the, what was talked about earlier, that when you met John Paul II, you felt like for that 30 seconds, for that 10 seconds, you're the only human being in the world. That's, that's encounter. Pope Francis gave a wonderful description of it in a homily he gave uh, two Argentinians. He'd just been elected pope, and there's a famous pilgrimage in Buenos Aires uh, in honor of St. Cajetan, where literally, if you've ever been in Latin America, I, I grew up in uh, Venezuela for, for a number of years anyway, but if you've been in Latin America, you know that more people go to the pilgrimages and holy days, they go out on the streets, than go to mass, right? So you've literally got tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, walking through Buenos Aires doing a Long, circuitous journey, they end at the basilica, and then they hear from the archbishop. Well, their archbishop had just been made pope, so they were literally piping him in, he's on a big screen. And he gave a homily to all these people, and if you could picture this in Latin America, you've got literally thousands of people walking the streets. And because of the number of the poor who have been coming in from the countryside and sort of building out the city on the outskirts, they come in and beg. Uh, but, you know, as you would think, it's really smart if you want to get money from Catholics, make it when they're doing some sort of penitential act. They're a little bit more open for the future fundraisers. Um, I'm kidding. Don't, don't make donors feel guilty. Um, so he gives a sermon at the end of it. He says, you've come here. You've come, and I'm so glad you're here. And he said, as you were walking along, and that person on the side of the pilgrimage looked at you and asked for something, did you just give them some money? Or did you touch them? Did you touch their hand? Did you look them in the eye? Did you ask their name? Or did you just toss them some coins? Which I'm convinced is a biblical reference to tossing coins, which is not a good one. Because if you have not looked at them, touched them, spoken to them, you have not encountered them. No, this is not the way we must go. We must build a culture of encuentro, a culture of encounter. Here's the challenge, y'all. Whatever we do for one another, it has to have, it ought to have, let me put it that way, that human encounter. Because here's the thing, that is Jesus Christ in some way. Or as C.S. Lewis once put it, you've never met an ordinary person. There's no such thing as ordinary people. Every human being you meet, the people you laugh with, the people you joke with, the people you may make fun of, the people you may resent, are all immortal beings that will outlast the mountains and all the stars. And so your interaction with them is with an immortal being and the consequences of it are eternal. Eternal. No one is just an ordinary human being. This is what God is inviting us into. He's inviting us to bring love to immortal beings that will have an eternal consequence for them and for us. And so you don't just toss coins. You don't just check a box. I did my poverty thing for the week. You don't just write checks, although please keep writing checks, those of you who are donors. I've been begging for money long enough in my life, I can say that. 
It's not enough. Un encuentro. A story that sort of brought this home to me at one point was from when I took over Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver, which was a great gift to me. I left, I was teaching at the Augustine Institute. I was president of the Augustine Institute. And I stepped away from that. For It's a longish story, but I can tell you, Archbishop Schaff, you're looking at me like, are you having marital trouble? What are you doing? Now, for me, it was conviction. I felt like the Lord wanted me to serve those in need. So I stepped away from that, and he, I was able to serve him in charities. In the Archdiocese of Denver, many of you may know, we have a committed, built-for homeless shelter called Samaritan House, run by, uh, for a while by the Capuchins, then by Catholic Charities. But there have always been a, a Capuchin uh, chaplain there for a long time. And one of the older Catholic uh, chaplains at Capuchin told me this story. He said when he was very young, at the beginning of Samaritan House, now Samaritan House is big. It sleeps about 350 people. If you've ever been in a homeless shelter that offers services, it's like its own ecosystem. It's its own world, right? You're dealing with a very volatile population. You've got to be very careful. You've got to have a lot of rules because a lot of stuff can go wrong. And it was a mixed shelter. So it had women and children on the top floor, women on the second floor, men on the first floor. And you're feeding them, feeding 300 people. You're sleeping 300 people. You're doing laundry for 300 people, right? And the population's moving. So you got all kinds of rules. Doors open, doors closed. Where you can be, where you can't be. Strict time scales, right? Because really strange things happen. My first day of the job, I got a call as CEO. Here I thought I was going to save Catholic Charities. And the first call I get was from Samaritan House. And the runner, the guy who runs Samaritan House said, hey, by the way, we've got an urn of ashes. Somebody left from some relative who's no longer here, hasn't been here. What do I do with it? I have no idea. And my executive assistant turned to me and said, call a priest? I'm like, yeah, yeah, call a priest, you know? I didn't know what I was doing. So this is a strange place. But one of the things about Samaritan House is you came in through glass doors, you'd come to a bench, and you'd come to a desk, and in, desk was a, in front of the desk was a blue bench. And that blue bench was where you just sat everybody down, and that's where you started dealing with whatever, the intake, whatever. So sure enough, this Capuchin's telling a story. It's one of these awful Denver nights. It's freezing cold. It's been crazy. The place is full, right? Full of women and children and men. And you do not open the doors after 9 o'clock at night. You simply do not. And you, do not, you don't let people out. You don't let people in. It's just a good rule. Sure enough, 2 o'clock in the morning, knock on the door. Someone's all wrapped up in clothes, and they're coming out there. And he's a capuchin, and it's a glass door, and they can see in. He's like, the rule says, the rule says. Opens the door, breaks the rule, right? He's a capuchin. He's got to open the door. In comes this person. He later finds out her name is Mary. He says she's wrapped, you know, head to, clearly been trying to survive on the streets, and she looks like someone who's been trying to survive on the street, wrapped in scarves, got a big old coat on, doing everything, except she had no shoes. She had no shoes, so she'd been walking the streets shoeless. Someone had taken them. Her feet are bloody. There's wet snow dripping off them. Surely she couldn't feel them, right? And he says he brings her in, and he puts her on the blue bench, and he's trying to decide, what do I do? We're full. I don't know if any hospitals are open right now. I don't even know if we can get there, given the roads right now. I have no idea what to do. He's there with just one volunteer. And by the way, being in Samaritan House alone with just one volunteer all night is a terrifying thing because you're not sure what call is going to happen. Young volunteer, and well, he's got her on the bench asking very reasonable questions. How do I get her help, et cetera, et cetera. He walks into the other room, gets a bowl, fills it full of warm water, puts a towel over his shoulder, come back, kneel in front of her at the bench and starts washing her feet. That act didn't solve all of Mary's problems. But for a moment, Mary knew she was a human being. 
she knew something about her own dignity because she had un encuentro. It was an encounter where his dignity on his knees washing her feet and her dignity having her feet washed, one who'd been forgotten, isolated, alone. The Lord made a connection. He put love in. So here's my challenge to y'all. Go out and build a culture of encounter. Every human being you meet. Start with your family, y'all. Start with those closest to you. That's not just someone to get by, someone to pass by, someone to deal with. This is an immortal soul. And if there's something broken, put love in. Put love in. And bring Christ with you. Make sure your encounter with Jesus Christ is real because, you know, at the end of the day, we can be very kind to one another, but if we don't bring Christ, we're actually not solving isolation forever. Because, you know, there are some places every human being has to walk where we can't go with them. We like to talk a lot about accompaniment, but death is lonely, y'all. My father died this summer. I watched. There was a road he had to walk. He was in my house. He died in my house. We were near him. But you walk that road alone. Only Christ can walk that road. Bring your relationship with Christ into an encounter and bring the Lord into it for the sake of ending isolation. How do you do it? Go find somewhere to serve. Go see my friends at Christ in the city. Go go on a fellowship, a focus mission trip. Do the little bit you can do. Just find a place to serve. But do it with this vision. Mother Teresa, my last, this is it. My favorite line from Mother Teresa, she was holding the hand of a dying man, a Hindu man. And at a certain point after she'd cared for him, he's just dying, there's nothing she can do. She looks at him and says, can I tell you about my friend Jesus? And his response was, is he anything like you? She says, he's nothing like me, but I try to be like him. And he said, then I'd like to hear about him. May God give us the grace to build a culture of encounter. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening, friends. To hear more content from speakers like this, join us for Seek 24 in St. Louis, January 1st through the 5th. Visit seek.focus.org to learn more.